Welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And who doesn't love character breakfasts? Except for me. They're okay. Well, and the characters. I mean, that's a lot of work they have to do. Yeah, and they and like everybody else is eating, and they don't they, get to eat on top of anything. that. So I guess huh. I guess a couple of people don't like character breakfasts. But I mean who who doesn't like character breakfasts? It's time for Disney History. So it's pretty hard to imagine a Walt Disney World vacation nowadays without a character breakfast experience, especially if you have children. Mm -hmm. Cinderella's Royal Table and Chef Mickey's still command the long waiting list and require travelers to fit their vacations around their dining choices, but it always was not like that. See, in 1977, one of the first character dining experiences with a simple buffet at the Cochino Cove at the Contemporary, where guests can join Disney, excuse me, Disney characters for breakfast every Sunday. Just on Sunday, guys. Just Sunday. Now, the buffet would move a year later, but not too far away, to the Terrace Cafe at the Contemporary, where, guess what? Reservations? Not required. No big deal. Wow. So, how did we get to the point where it's completely necessary to call more than 100 days in advance to make a reservation? Um, so, uh, I dug into some of uh, my early Walt Disney World publications to look at the history of character dining. And in April 1981, the Walt Disney World News announced that dining a la Disney, an evening meal. It said, each evening at 5 p.m., Walt Disney characters will arrive at the golf resort's trophy room to mingle with guests and pass out a gift to each child. This is the earliest mention of a daily character dining experience, as well as a strange gift-giving experience. Yeah, I wonder what that gift is. I mean, yeah. I want a free gift. So, there was breakfast a la Disney appeared shortly after that at the Village Restaurant, the Empress Lily, and the Polynesian Resort. Now, according to Walt Disney World News, on the menu are Danish breakfast rolls, scrambled eggs, bacon, hash browns, and a excuse me, breakfast beverage of your choice. Um, I don't know what that consists of. Uh, who are knows? they? Is it alcoholic? It might be. I don't know. All spiced with the presence of your favorite Disney characters, who happily hopped from table to table, passing out complimentary fun gifts. Fun See? gifts in quotations gifts again. They're they're trying to buy their love. Guess what, guys? It's that must it's, be what it was. it's working. It's totally it's working. working. Yeah. So 1994 in 1984, Birnbaum's Guide to Walt Disney World offers less than a quarter of a page about breakfast with the Disney characters. At that time, there were three spots for breakfast. The Empress Lily, the Terrace Cafe at the Contemporary, and Minnie's Menihuni at the Polynesian Village. An additional spot was available as part of an Easter Airlines package at the Village Restaurant. Rest reservations were needed at each of these locations except for the buffet at the Terrace Cafe. 
1986, there was a Melvin the Moose breakfast show at Pioneer Hall in Fort Wilderness. Now, this was one of the more elaborate character meals and a step towards what we are actually used to seeing today. Chip and Dale would actually take over this breakfast and rename it a Jamboree a year later, and that breakfast lasted only until 1991. So the, the very next big change in character dining would take place in 1990 and center on the Village Restaurant, which was a prime dining location during the heyday of the Disney Village. It was called an elegant and subdued dining experience that offered fashion shows, yes, yes, they had fashion shows, and jazz bands in the Village Lounge. So a 1978 Walt Disney World News described the Village Restaurant as a prime choice of an afternoon for afternoon and evening shoppers. Um, mentioned you're, you're comfortably seated in a countryside setting that's brought indoors, and diners are tempted by some lunchtime entrees like Eggs Benedict, Spanish Omelette, and King Crab and Artichoke Omelette. <laughs> Yum. They uh, may also choose from fried shrimp, fried scallops, French dip, a Reuben, a beef eater, turkey sandwiches, and the Waste Watcher specials, which were crab and shrimp salad. Or the calorie counter. What's in the calorie counter? I mean, it I didn't mention no that. That's idea. I don't. I don't think I want to eat it. I don't think I want to either. Um, especially if it is a calorie counter. <laughs> Gross. They bring it to your table. Yeah. Who knows? So the the aroma of New Orleans bouillabaisse simmering on the stove and steaks grilled on an open hearth draw guests in for an evening of fine dining. Nothing in that's driving drawing me in anywhere. Uh, but beside the famous seafood stew, the restaurant specialized in steak Oscar, shrimp Mediterranean, sautéed frog legs, and Long Island duckling. Not entirely sure if this is the type of character meal I want to be going to, or my yeah. kids, for that matter. But yeah. 1989, Burmam's Guide to Walt Disney World mentions that Cinderella was appearing at dinner. This was also the time that the village restaurant would be closed, and when it reopened in 1990, it would be known as Chef Mickey's Village Restaurant, providing the template for the character dining as we know it now. Now, the exterior of the restaurant received the most attention by the, them adding the colorful red overhangs sporting the Chef Mickey logo. And at the time, the Disney Village was known for its muted browns and greeds, so this added the bright red of Chef Mickey signaled a, a big change for the complex. And, and during a visit in 1994, uh, my wife and I reserved a 5 p.m. seating. And I was quite surprised when I looked at the receipt almost 20 years later. The dinner for two consisted of prime rib, ribeye, baked potatoes, french fries, and two souvenir drinks. And even in 1994, it was 36.75, which back then was pretty high for dining. But it was well worth it to meet Mickey Mouse. Um, Goofy's Grog came in a souvenir cup and had actual grapes in it. Not grape juice, whole grapes. And they had somebody on standby in case I choked on the grapes. If you needed the Heimlich, not the Heimbuck, the Heimlich. The Heimlich. The Heimlich. They're, they're different moves. We won't talk about exactly. the Heimbuck. <laughs> now, Chef Mickey's Village Restaurant closed on September 30th, 1995, and it reopened in 1996 at the Contemporary Resort where you can still find it today. The Rainforest Cafe took over the spot that was vacated by Chef Mickey in 1996. Now, to me, the change from the Village Restaurant signifies a change for the entire Walt Disney World complex. It is one of the turning points when the Vacation Kingdom of the World started its march to the Walt Disney World Resort that we see today, especially when it comes to character dining. Yes, and gift shops at the end of every ride. 
Yes, but not when you're eating, because apparently they don't give out free gifts anymore. Your gift is being there, kids. Be happy you met the characters. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, I've got to start this review with the following statement. This is the most prized book in my collection. Of course, I mean, you know, It's Kind of a Cute Story is, is second place. A really, really close second place. All right, I'll, I'll accept that. You can and stop okay. kissing my butt now. Go on. Oh, good. Good, because it's smelling kind of bad. Um, I have over 650 <laughs> Disney-related books, so picking my favorite is always difficult. And Disneyland The Nickel Tour, a postcard journey through half a century of the happiest place on Earth, has consistently and constantly been a favorite since the first time I cracked its spine. I'll try not to be too biased, but it's also the most expensive and one of the hardest to come by. Uh, in the afterwords section of another book called Walt's Time, one of the authors explained how the Nickel Tour came to be. He said that they talked to every publisher they could find and they heard the same story word for word. No commercial potential, no audience, no market, no deal. So they put the book together themselves, they scanned all the cards, they did the layout of every page, and they had it printed in Italy. They lugged the book to every convention and sold them through mail order. And as Bruce Gordon said, and guess what? We sold every book we printed. So Disneyland The Nickel Tour is the look at the first 45 years of Disneyland's history as seen through the hundreds of postcards from the park. There were over 1,600 of them. So besides Randy Bright's wonderful Disneyland Inside Story, published in 87, The Nickel Tour stands as one of the two most comprehensive books about Disneyland's history. And where it edges out Randy's work is just that The Nickel Tour does cover the 1990s. Sadly, Randy passed away in 1990, so a second edition of his Disneyland book isn't forthcoming. And Bruce Gordon, one of the writers of The Nickel Tour, was an Imagineer and started with the company in 1980, he passed away in November 2007. David Mumford, the other author, worked with Bruce on several Disney books and projects and was an Imagineer. He passed away in 2003. So as it stands, the second edition of The Nickel Tour will sadly probably be the last. So The Nickel Tour is an amazing work on so many levels. The images of the postcards, the photographs of the attractions that weren't released in postcard form, the historical information, and the writing. They begin by sharing pre-opening cards, and we go year by year and attraction by attraction through the history of Disneyland. And one of Gordon Mumford's strengths is that they write well, and can take something as simple as the postcards and turn them into an epic look at a theme park. And, you know, it never gets over-technical. It's always filled with reverence, always filled with love, and occasionally remorse. Um, but they slip in a lot of humor. And the following small paragraph is one of my favorites. They could have presented this as a huge litany of facts, but they went a slightly different way. And this is a direct quote. On the left-hand side of Main Street, we encounter the Sunkiss Citrus House. Long before this view was taken, the Citrus House had actually been two separate stores. One housing Sunnyview Jams and Jellies, the other housing the Puff and Bake Shop. By October of 1958, Disneyland had canned the jam and jelly shop and opened a candy store in its place. It was a sweet deal until June of 1960 when the puff and bake shop went stale. It seems they just weren't making enough dough to stay in business. And even worse, it wasn't long before everyone was beginning to sour on the candy shop next door. <laughs> That's so clever. So you can see they're 
really fantastic writers. They loved Disney and they knew what they were doing with it. Absolutely loved it. So the sense of history that you get from the Nickel Tour through the postcards and photographs hasn't been presented in any other form. Gordon and Mumford worked in the parks, or worked in the park, and have an intimate knowledge of it. They worked and lived and breathed Disneyland and were actually one of the few people qualified to write this book. Not just academically, but emotionally. They loved the park. Uh, and besides being a reference work for postcards, it's like a wish book. You can open it to any page and see a favorite or long-gone attraction and dream about visiting or re-experiencing it. Uh, the images are stellar, and you'll be surprised. These postcards really were forms of art. Um, they're actually fantastic. It, it, it's hard to stress how important this work uh, is in the Disney literature. Besides being one of the two major historical works about Disneyland, you get a feel for how Disneyland evolved how Walt plus the park, and, and how the Disney company moved forward after Walt. It's the most cherished book in my entire collection, and if you're lucky enough to find a copy, you need to get it. This is a book that I always recommend to diehard Walt Disney World fans, too, because the history of Disneyland offers a lot of insight into the growth of Walt Disney World as well. There are two versions. The one with the red cover is the first edition from 95, and the one that I looked at for this review is the second version from 2000. Either one is a great addition to your collection. The book is simply amazing. And the complete title, again, <laughs> is Disneyland The Nickel Tour, A Postcard Journey Through a Half a Century of the Happiest Place on Earth. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60-second review. Well, a few weeks ago, Jeff and I both received an email from Werner Weiss of Yesterland, fantastic website, by the way, introducing us to John Delmont and uh, mentioning, asking us if we had ever seen the secret tour of Disneyland, and he thought it'd be a great item for us to review. So we both said, sure, send us a review copy, and it showed up, and we both watched it, and I have to admit, I was really surprised and excited. Yeah, I mean, this was something that I had seen reviewed in other places before um, for a couple of years now. And for some reason, I just never took the plunge into getting it. I think maybe because I'm mostly a Walt Disney World guy, obviously. But now Probably, that I'm going yeah. to, to Disneyland more and more, this is a perfect opportunity, especially since I'm going in less than a month now. So, oh, shut up. Sorry, I didn't mean to rub that in, George. Um, but it was fantastic. I thought it was really, really good. Um, so, as a, as a little sidebar, if you guys don't know what it is, it's a DVD, and it's show, basically showing a lot of the fun little side things that you don't know about at Disneyland, some extra things that you can do, um, some little hidden secrets, sometimes there's five-legged goats, they don't call it five-legged goats, hey. though, not yet, maybe that's the third edition, but um, a lot of cool things that they included in this, and I, I thought they did a great job. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about two and a half hours really, which was surprising. I mean, it was, it was absolutely fantastic to see it. Uh, you ha we have the, the co-host or our personal guide. Her name's Lauren. And this is the second edition. And so they, they have some older footage mixed in some newer ones. So you sort of see her grow up, which is kind of cute to see the changes and everything like that. But she basically takes us on a tour of Disneyland, almost all the lands, and you learn a lot. And I was surprised. There were a few things that I learned after watching the, the DVD, but don't tell anybody. 
that, my that you didn't know something? on the line. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, hey. it's, it's very, very clear that the father-daughter team of John and Lauren did a mm-hmm. lot of research ab- about Disneyland to find all these different things. And it's also clear that they spent a lot of time making this because you can tell it, there is a lot of love and dedication thrown into this, this project, uh, not just from the writing aspect, from filming it in its uh, respective places in the parks. They went Mm -hmm. to places even outside of the parks as well that related back to Disneyland. So this was something that took them a long time to do. And even editing-wise, I got to give John credit. He did a great job. This is one of the more professional um, DVDs I have ever seen before, especially fan-made. My biggest thing that I would have to say is that this is the type of thing that Disney should be doing as a promotional tool. Um, maybe oh, not yeah. as maybe not as long, but I, I think this is this is what they should be doing, and I think John and Lauren did an excellent job of that. And and, and something that that's fantastic with Lauren as a host and with her father producing it is some of the segments, or I guess some of the the segues, the seeds, or anything like that, could have been really hokey, but they're not. They're really well done. It's charming, and you enjoy it so much. It, when I was thinking about the perfect audience. For this, I mean, both of us are really hardcore. We know a lot. We've read a lot. This is really for somebody who's visited the park a few times and maybe wants to learn a lot more about Disneyland. And you're not gonna, it's not gonna ruin any secrets or ruin the park visit for you. It's going to enhance your park visit, if anything. And it's also people who just love Disneyland are gonna enjoy it. It's sort of like, hey, you remember, we know this is our visit. I remember seeing that. I remember doing that. I remember riding on this. You know, I think I think it's got a wide audience. It just needs to get more attention. Yeah, exactly. And the only, I, I not that this is a bad mark against or anything, but like George mentioned before, it's long. It, it comes in at two and a half hours, and there's also a ton of bonus features too. Um, it, for me, I was able to, to, you know, watch the entire thing in its entirety. If you have kids and you're watching this with them, it might be a little hard to watch it with them from start to finish. Not that they won't enjoy it, they just might get a little antsy. So, luckily, it's broken up into chapters, so it might be good to watch it over a couple of evenings with uh, your kids. But they're going to love it. They, they're going to think it's great because there's a lot of cool information. Lauren, as a host, is very entertaining. She's very engaging. And you learn a lot about it, too. So... I think it's a it's a dual thumbs up, two two communicore thumbs up for me. I agree. I agree. So uh, if you if you want to give it a shot, you can find it on Amazon. Just type in Secret Tour of Disneyland, and it will pop up. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the queue for Rock and Roller Coaster, right before you get on the ride, there is a sign on a chain link fence that reads. Buena Vista Sign Company, 551-6500, serving you since 1952. See, that phone number is actually the original main line for Walt Disney Imagineering in Glendale back in 1952. So, a special thanks and shout out to our friend and dis- fellow Disney historian, Jeff Curdy for giving that little awesome five-legged goat. Well, thanks so much for paying attention to us. Be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. Yes, we love the ratings, the good ones. Do we get bad ones? To learn from the bad ones, right? Well, yeah, yeah, we always learn from the bad ones. Oh, of course, of course. It's constructive so, criticism. 
Well, criticism, yes. Well, anyways, uh, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com, including your happy thoughts, how much you love us. You can also like us on facebook.com slash communicorweekly, where you can, I don't know, tell us there how much you enjoy the show or hate it too. I mean, we're, we're okay with that also. Yeah, and, and that way everybody else and all your friends will know that you like Communicore Weekly. Or hate Communicore Weekly. Whatever whatever you decide to post. Quit saying the hate word. I, I'm just saying. I'm just You're saying. Gonna You're gonna implant. We don't want that. Okay, sorry guys. Like. Like Communicore like, Weekly. Like, 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 yes. So uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Imaginerding and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. So I'm George. And I'm Jeff. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Schmepperty.